What is happening, NBA fans? Uh, welcome into another week of Dropping Dimes. I'm your host, Matt Nost, and I hope everybody's good out there. We're gearing up for the NBA playoffs. They are a short 11-ish games away, and there is still so much to be decided tonight. There are games aplenty that have numerous playoff implications it is a thing of beauty to know that this late in the season, we still have all kinds of action and whatnot that will have ramifications and repercussions thereafter. Tonight's games, Hawks versus Sixers, implications. Lakers versus Wizards for both teams, implications, as, as well as Hawks, Sixers. Bulls, Knicks, without a doubt, implications. Hornets, Celtics, yep. Spurs, Heat, you know it. Pelicans, Nuggets, kind of. The Nuggets need to keep on this win streak. Uh, Blazers, Grizzlies, indefinitely. And Clippers, Suns. And then also uh, Jazz and the Kings. Every one of those games has significant meaning for the playoffs as a whole. What a, It's great. This late in the season with the play-in game and all the different repercussions of falling down to the play-in game, trying to make your way into it, a la the uh, the Bulls and Wizards scrapping for that shitty 10th spot in the East, and neither fan base should be pleased with themselves. Neither. Your your team is not good. It is inherently flawed. Um, but if you can make that 10th spot, yippee for you. Congratulations. But the team I want to begin today's discussion with uh, are the red-hot New York Knickerbockers with more than likely the coach of the year, Mr. Tom Thibodeau. Um, the Knicks, who were basically forecast to be, what, like a 20-25 to 25 win team? I mean, nothing good. Currently are sitting at fourth in the East, and they're tied for fourth in the East with the Hawks, although they do have the tiebreaker with the Hawks. Um, they've beaten them three times this year of their three games. So they have that tiebreaker as of right now, as far as I know. Now, if other teams enter into and becomes a three-way or a four-way uh, tie kind of thing, which isn't too far off, the Celtics and Heat are both sitting at 32 and 30. So they're two games back of the Knicks and Hawks. But as of right now, the New York Knicks are sitting at fourth and looking pretty excellent. You got to give them props to the coaching staff for implementing a system that works, for getting the most out of their players, for drafting wisely. I mean, Emmanuel quickly, the 25th pick overall, could be the steal of the draft or at least one of them. I mean, the Knicks have been flat out really good. So it's interesting if you dive into the numbers, right? So Derrick Rose asks for a trade and wants to go to the Knicks. And that was, I want to say, February 7th. His first game was February 9th. And the Knicks, you know, when they go to get Rose, if I would 
been a Knicks fan, and, and some people were lamenting at the times, like, oh, great. Tibbs is getting another one of his guys, and he's going to play that guy over developing young talent. And Quickly's numbers have been basically the same as they were before. His production and output has been basically the same. That would be my biggest fear is cutting into his development because he is the future of the team along with, you know, RJ Barrett and uh, depending on what they do with Mitchell Robinson, who is out with a fractured fifth metatarsal uh, in his foot and he's done for the year, but he's a restricted free agent at the end of the year. And that kind of, that sucks for him because it's going to affect whatever contract he gets next. Um, if he opts to sign, you know, if he, if he declines the offer on the restricted free agent and comes back next year to play, there is the risk that he's not anywhere near where he was this year. And it's going to take him a while to get back into game shape. So he may not get as large an offer as he would from the Knicks or somebody else on restricted free agency this year, just because another team might force the Knicks to make a decision on him and offer him a big contract or do what Daryl Moore used to do in Houston, offer a poison pill contract where certain years of it are designed to be impossible for the current team to retain that player just for salary cap reasons. So, but so they've lost Mitchell Robinson and they pick up Derek Rose. And the fear is at least from my perspective and others that, you know, Tibbs is going to rely on him too much and they're not going to get as much run out as their young guys. So the Knicks before Rose, here are their stats. They're 24th in offensive rating, 6th in defensive rating. Their uh, net rating, the difference between the two, is 19th at negative 1.1, which is not good. You're giving up 1.1 more points than you're able to score on your own. They are dead last in points per game. Dead last. They are 24th in field goal percentage, 21st in three-point percentage, and 29th in three-point attempts. Uh, since they picked up Derrick Rose, and I'm not saying that Derrick is the catalyst for this, but it, you know, having a former MVP and somebody that's made some some good playoff runs um, and has been in high-pressure situations uh, and can mentor the younger guys, because when he went over there, there was a bunch of people that said, uh, or a bunch of the players that, yeah, you know, we pick his brain, we ask him questions, we talk to him about all kinds of different basketball-related things, and he was, you know, forthcoming with all that information, happy to uh, uh, oblige all those young guys and answer what he could. So I think that kind of steady leadership has really helped uh, buoy them and is one of the many contributing factors as to their current you know, the red hot streak right now. They're nine and one in their last 10. Uh, and those are against, those are against some mediocre teams, but also some, some actually some solid teams in there. So since they picked up Rose, their offensive rating jumped from 24th to 14th. Now, once again, I'm not saying this is because Derek Rose is on the team, but it's a contributing factor to the overall and helped reform their identity. So they jumped 10 spots in offensive rating. And this is since February 9th, their second game of their baseball doubleheader against the Heat. Uh, their de defensive rating went from sixth to fourth. They jumped up two spots. Their net rating, this is huge. They went from negative 1.1, 19th in the league, 
to ninth in the league at a positive 4.3. So they're outscoring their opponents by 4.3 points per game in this run. Their points per game jumped nine spots to 21st. Still not great, but when your defense is this strong, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't need to be the absolute best. It's good if it is. You know, if you're truly going to be a contending team, you need to be top 10 in both offensive and defensive rating. There's only been one or two teams in the past, in the modern basketball history that haven't been top 10 in both. Um, their field goal percentage jumped slightly from 24th to 22nd, but their three-point percentage has gone up massively. They jumped from 21st to 2nd. They've been shooting lights out from three. And then... Their attempts have gone up as well, up to 23rd from 29th. So all positive over the past two and a half months, they're trending in exactly the right direction. Now, sitting at fourth, they're four and a half games back of the Bucks, and they have no real shot of catching the Bucks. They would have to run off a flawless, you know, from here to the end of the season, lose one possibly two games and Milwaukee needs to drop all of their games in save for winning one or two games. So they need to be polar opposites of one another. And I don't really foresee that happening. Milwaukee's, you know, playing 600 ball as of right now, they had a solid win last night when they needed it. Um, so I think New York is fighting for that fourth spot and the honor of taking on either Atlanta, Boston, or Miami. Um, if I were them, boy, I'm not sure who I take. I guess perhaps, well, you would say Boston or Miami just because they're lower in the standings. I think Atlanta's one of their greatest strengths is their depth, uh, which Boston doesn't have as much. So I might want to try and see if I can get, you know, root for Boston to get up to that five spot. Because uh, outside of the consistency of Tatum and Brown, the rest of the team is hit and miss. And even Tatum and Brown, there are nights where you question whether or not they're both checked in. Um, now, it's not consistently like that. They're usually pretty good. I mean, they're averaging 50 points a game between the two of them. Um, so it's solid production. But that being said, if you've watched enough of their games... Even Brad Stevens called him out and said that, you know, in essence, our team lacks heart. So the Knicks, you know, playing with house money and a ton of confidence, I kind of would lean towards Boston just because Miami, when they get to the playoffs, they have last year to steady them and they have all the confidence in the world when it comes into the playoffs. I mean, uh, Jimmy Butler was quoted the other day of all, we just need to get to the playoffs and I'll carry us from there. And, um, I, you know, after last season kind of believe it, I mean, night in, night out, I don't know that he can do it. Although we won't be on as condensed a schedule as the bubble, but still we saw him do it, put up monster numbers and carry that team to the finals, uh, and play really well. But for the Knicks, so you've had really the rise of, Julius Randle, and then R.J. Barrett coming into his own in the second season. Randle is putting up career numbers in all kinds of different statistical uh, categories. He's also, as per Tibbs fashion, 
He is leading the league in minutes per game at 37 and a half, um, which, you know, true to form for tips. He is, he is riding him hard. Um, he's riding RJ Barrett. RJ Barrett's averaging 34, 35 minutes a game. Like, uh, this is what Tibbs does. Hopefully he has learned from his mistakes in the past and doesn't drive these guys into the ground by playing them too much. I mean, as a Bulls fan, there were preseason games where the starters are out there just playing entirely too long, but we were winning at the time. So it's kind of hard to question. And then you have injuries to Rose and to Luol Deng. And then you begin to question whether or not playing these guys heavy minutes in meaningless games is advantageous to the team's long-term future and success. Um, So hopefully Tibbs has learned from that. But right now, I mean, Julius Randle, he's career high in points, career high in rebounds, assists, and steals. Now, the assists and steals aren't dramatically higher, but still, career years. And especially when you're having a career year in minutes and points and rebounds, legitimate ones there, you know, steals is an effort category, as is rebounds. You know, efforts and effort and in, in IQ, basketball IQ. Um, but if you're carrying more of a minutes and scoring load, by and large, people are willing to kind of let a few of the other statistical categories fall off a little bit, and to know that he's still out there trying his hardest, putting up his best numbers. And the other crazy thing from Randall is it's a career year from three and he's shooting damn near elite 418 from three on 5.3 attempts a game. That's legit. 418 is a fantastic number from three. And at 5.3 attempts, that is not some bullshit number. I mean, the dude is taking a wide number, a large number of threes and he's hitting them at above a 40% clip which is all you can ask for. Hovering around 42% is elite from three. Um, so, I mean, they're getting a hell of a year from Julius Randle. On the, the other, you know, Nick to focus on would be uh, RJ Barrett. Now, there was questions last year, you know, did the Knicks make the right decision, taking him so high, and... Last year, he had an up-and-down year, um, which is fine for a rookie. Very few rookies come in and dominate from day one. That's a that's a tall order to ask for. And he's jumped his points per game from 14.3 to 17.5. Um, but, and that doesn't seem like that dramatic a shift, but he's finishing really well with defenders in his face and on his hip. I mean, his shooting percentages um, are completely solid and legitimate. Couple that with the fact that he's getting a lot of his shots from 10 feet and in. So he is trying to get to the lane. Now he's, his free throw average is, you know, only two to three a game. So you'd like to see him get that up to five to six, you know, just driving more and making the defense pay for um, your athleticism. So if he got to the line a little bit more, but still he's shooting the ball. He's trying to get to the rim. He's shooting the ball really well when he is a defender is within uh, 
there are two different metrics within um, basically dead straight on him and within four feet. And he's shooting really well, um, you know, low to mid 40s in both, which is excellent. Uh, and another nice thing about, you know, when you watch him, he doesn't just sit there and dribble with the ball. He helps uh, move it around, ping it around to the other players to get other people involved. And he could devolve into more of an ISO-ish player and just kind of, uh, you know, handle the ball a little too much, a la, you know, Luca. If you go and look at the number of times Luca dribbles seven-plus times uh, per possession, it's a staggeringly high number. But that is what his game is predicated upon. It's also more than likely part of the friction of why Porzingis uh, and he haven't exactly seen eye to eye at all times. You know, Porzingis was under the misconception that the offense was kind of his, which doesn't make any sense whatsoever. When Luca has been anointed, he's already been in the MVP discussion. Um, Not that he was going to win it, but he's been in the discussion. Whereas, you know, Porzingis has never been that, I think it's more so Pusing is just standing around and waiting for Luca to finish dribbling. Uh, but Randall, I mean, uh, uh, RJ Barrett doesn't do that. You know, he moves the ball around uh, quite nicely. And that could be a function of, you know, Julius Randall does have the ball more in his hands. Um, I'd have to look up usage rate between the two of them, but I don't even remotely question Randall's usage rate is higher. And I know that Randall will have the ball in his hands a little bit more as he's basically backing down his defender or sizing up the the guy on him. But Randall's also the guy that late in the shot clock, he's tasked more often with not, more often than not, rather, uh, with getting a shot up for the Knicks. But for R.J. Barrett, the improvement from year one to year two, two has been everything you want to see. Uh, his... Three-point percentage has gone up from 320 to 386. That's awesome. If you can get that around 40% by next year, amazing. His field goal percentage also has jumped from 402 to 446. Um, So, once again, hitting more shots, feeling more comfortable playing at the NBA game, it is the exact right trajectory of what you want to see with a young player as they mature into being one of the faces of your franchise. And, you know, I brought up his free throw attempts, but his percentage has gone up probably the most staggering amount um, from 614 last year to 744. That's a huge jump. And 614 is scary as basically you know, a playmaking shooter, you should have a better free throw percentage than that. So 70-44, if he can get this into low 80s, fantastic. I mean, 90s is elite, um, but not many guys in the league shoot in the 90th percentile. So ideally, if he can get into the low low 80s, he increases his three-point percentage to 40-ish, and then gets his overall field goal percentage. Look, 446 is great. You get that up to 46, 47, um, even better, because now you're lethal from so many different spots that a defender has to respect you every 
inch of the court. Um, so the Knicks, the Knicks are, you know, going to be a tough out. A Tom Thibodeau led team is always, a t- t- trust me, as a Bulls fan, Knicks fans, you should be content in knowing your squad is going to show up to play. They're going to play their asses off. Even in a loss, they're going to play their asses off. People will dread facing them, knowing all these other things. Um, The addition, I love seeing Rose on this team and uh, Taj. I think Taj is a solid player and has been a solid player for a long time. I didn't, when the Bulls picked him up, I, I didn't think anything of him in the draft. And then, uh, you know, watching the first couple of games, it's like, I don't know, he seems kind of uncoordinated a little bit for you know, an NBA player. And the more you watch him, you're like, no, this, this guy is everything you want in your team. He doesn't need the ball to shoot, but when he does shoot, he, he makes the right decision. Um, he hustles, he plays hard. Uh, and now on this Knicks team, he only needs to play, you know, he'll play hard if he plays two minutes or if he plays 10. And that's precisely the type of teammate that you want. Um, over in the chat, we got uh, Ramon Cook says, good morning or good day, rather. And then Jeremy Bowers, Randall needs to be in the MVP conversation, in my opinion. No chance of winning, but in the conversation, definitely. Um, I mean, I th- I think he's in the overall conversation. You're not wrong, but like I, I'm unsure if I'm going to do an end-of-season award show this year like I've done in years past, uh, just because MVP, it's Jokic's. Done. Unless they fall off a cliff in their last 11-ish games, it's it's going to be Jokic. They've, they've played too well since Jamal Murray's gone down. They've been 6-1 since Murray's gone down. And, you know, Embiid wanted to get into that conversation as well, but when Simmons sat out after he came back, they lost, I think, three straight. And they still had the bulk of their guys around it, whereas, you know, Jokic is losing his the second leading scorer on the team and the other, you know, the co-captain, um, so I think it's just another feather in Jokic's cap that they're six and one. And now Will Barton is out, you know, for the foreseeable future with the hamstring pull. And if they continue, I mean, if they win over these last, say they take seven, they go seven and four or something. It's unassailable at that point. So I don't know if I want to do an MVP discussion and then coach of the year. I think there's a few different coaches in the mix, and I think they're all very deserving. Uh, but I think it's Tibbs to lose. And then rookie of the year, probably Anthony Edwards. Um, you know, most improved. I, I don't know. You can make a case for so many different people on most improved. And six man, it, it comes down to who scored the most off the bench. Um, so I, I think the awards this year aren't as interesting as the overall race and people jockeying for the play-in game. Um, So Ishmael says, I don't think the Knicks can hold the fourth seed among the teams they've yet to face. There's only two teams that are under 500. Um, And Heroes in the half court says, Taj has had himself a solid 12-year career doing all the little things. I agree wholeheartedly. 
Uh, Taj has been great. As far as the Knicks, I need to look at strength of schedule for those three teams, see who the three teams are below them are all playing in Atlanta, Boston, and Miami to see if they can hold on to the fourth. Um, you know, Atlanta very well could overtake them. It's entirely possible. The Knicks own the tiebreaker, but, you know, um, Atlanta's depth has been one of their biggest advantages. And that's something I want to get to in in a little bit is Atlanta, basically the resiliency of teams. Um, but I want to open the Knicks because we haven't talked about it. And I, like a lot of people, I love it when New York is good. I think it is better for the league overall. It's the only team in New York that I like to see win. It's the only one. I'm happy to see the Giants, Jets, Yankees, Mets. I don't watch NHL, so I have no dog in that fight. But I'm happy to see all four of those teams lose. Um, Maybe not the Mets as much, but the other three for sure. I do not care. Um, Whereas the Knicks, what is commendable about the Knicks is, and their fan base, is they're legit. They have been suffering through 40 years of not winning a championship. It's been since the 70s, it's like the late 70s. So 40 some odd years and change. The Bernard King era. Um, and they've had a few bright spots in that makes sense. But overall, it's, you know, it's been a desert. And they've had to, to sift through weird lineups and, uh, you know, star players and mellow who forced their way over in a trade, which is to be celebrated if I'm a Knicks fan, but the amount of assets they had to give up meant there was nothing to surround him with. So unless he's going to score a super efficient 40 games a night, it, they're, they're going to be, you know, an easy out over a seven game series for everybody. Um, and then, there was the shortened season um, where they made the finals, but they lost. It was a fun story. And the next years when uh, the Ewing years, when they went up against uh, my Jordan led bulls, you know, fun, interesting, but never won a championship. There was always an impediment to making it to that final uh, uh, spot on the top of the podium, the King of the Hill status. But throughout all of this, man, Knicks fans, have, they're still there. They're still strong. I, I know several Knicks fans that are diehard, diehard. And it's to be commended. And in this day and age of, you know, large markets being able to outspend everybody else. And so long as they have, you know, a guy, they can surround them with more guys. And they've, several times over the past few years, freed up enough cap space and the discussion becomes, we've got enough for two Supermax guys, but the brain trust was still in place that led to the quagmire they were before. And now with Leon Rose there and Tibbs, they're an attractive place. And in the off season right now, their targets look pretty interesting. It's uh, Chris Paul, DeMar DeRozan, Norman Powell, and uh, there was a fourth name being floated around. I can't remember. But there's a decent chance they might be able to get, you know, one to two of those guys. 
I don't know, depending on how the Suns do, I don't know if Chris Paul leaves Phoenix. Um, and I would assume that uh, he's got a home here in Los Angeles, just having lived here so long and his kids were in school here, that Phoenix is relatively close. He can go home and spend time with the family if they stay there, um, unless they move to Phoenix with them. I, I don't know about that. Um, but they've got a shot. And I think with Leon Rose there, knowing the history that he's had with other players, uh, he was a former agent to numerous huge superstars and players across the league that uh, he's got working relationships with all those guys and a great reputation amongst players that I think that they can finally attract the right people. Plus Dolan um, is doing the wise thing, which he's kind of always done, which is stay out of the basketball decisions and let the basketball people run it. Now he chimes in and also kicks people out for wearing t-shirts that he doesn't like or chanting, chanting fire Dolan and all that nonsense. Um, but he knows when to interject and when not to for the most part. Uh, and right now I haven't seen much out of him. Um, I will say though, there's a parody account that I follow on Twitter called Dolan J Trump. That's excellent. Uh, go check that out. Uh, you know, it, it spells itself out exactly what it is, but it's a lot of fun. Um, anyway, so it's good to see the Knicks surging in the right directions. Um, so Ishmael says, Nick's still going to go against Suns, Clips, Nugs, and Lakers. If they hold the fourth seed, their last game against the Celtics should be interesting. Winner gets the tiebreaker. True. Nick's still going... Oh, oh, they talk about their upcoming schedule. Yeah, but it comes... It, it's also a function of where those teams are. Here, I'll pull it up. Because... The Suns, Clips, if they've locked in their position, then suddenly that team, that, that game is meaningless to them, but it might mean something to the Knicks, um, which would change the complexion of what it is overall. So, yeah, they've got the Bulls tonight, then they're at the Rockets. This is the, this is the problem. And I looked at this last night, but I forgot about it. They have a road swing over the course of nine days where it's at Houston, at Memphis, at Denver, at Phoenix, at Clippers, at Lakers. And then they close out three at home, San Antonio, Charlotte, Boston. So sad as it is to say, they can beat Chicago at home. They can beat Houston on the road. They've got the dogs to beat Grizzlies. Um, Denver will be a tough out, but at the same time, Denver is reeling from the various injuries and rejiggering. Um, so it'll be interesting at that point. Uh, the Phoenix Suns comes down to whether or not they've locked up their position. I doubt it. So the Suns will be playing. The Clippers comes down to whether or not they've locked in their position. I doubt it, but they should be playing. The Lakers... Um, you know, at that point, LeBron is slated to come back sometime next week. Well, tentatively, we'll see when that actually happens. So LeBron will be playing in that game. If he is back by then, he will be playing because he needs to get the game time. And him and AD, they need to see what they have with Drummond and Schroeder and everybody out there on the floor. 
Um, they don't have a lot of time to gel this team together. And then after that, San Antonio, um, but it's at home. Charlotte, they can win. Boston, they can win. And yeah, but you're right. That could be that closing with Boston uh, could be super interesting by the end of the season. Uh, so good looking out, Ishmael. Uh, all right, let's move on. So good luck to the Knicks. I, I hope you guys do well. Not at the expense of my Bulls tonight, but I hope you do well. Um, I want to talk about team resiliency. Because there's a whole bevy of teams that when they get punched in the mouth, they stagger back and others step up. In case of point, which I've already brought up, the Denver Nuggets are 6-1 and one since Jamal Murray, their second best player, went down. And it's a blow to their psyche overall. Now they've lost Will Barton with a hammy um, for the foreseeable future. Who knows? He's missed a few games thus far. He's going to miss more. Uh, hopefully they get him back right before the playoffs and he can get a little run time. But the story in this 6-1 and one run has been Michael Porter Jr. stepping up and trying to fill the void since Jamal Murray went down. And that's you know what a good team does. There's a reason that MPJ has been floated in a bunch of trades, but Denver opted not to ship him out for, you know, the various players that uh, they were purported to be attempting to get thus far um, over the past, you know, last year and into the off season and then uh, potentially up till trade, but it was mostly in the off season type of stuff of, okay, well, do you want Drew Holiday? You'd have to give up MPJ. Do you want Bradley Beal? And I don't know about the Bradley Beal discussion was genuine on Washington's part, but you knew you had to give up Michael Porter Jr. And they wanted to hold on to him. And perhaps this will be their holding on to when Golden State held on to Clay Thompson instead of sacrificing him for Kevin Love. Uh, it made all the difference in the world. They don't win those championships if they don't have Clay Thompson. So to hold on to Michael Porter Jr. before Jamal Murray's injury, which is the bulk of the season, he was averaging 17 points a game on 53, 42, and 76 shooting splits. That's field goal, three-point, and free throw. And that's on 12 and a half attempts overall from the field a game and five and a half from three on two free throws. And then after the injury, he has been lights out. He's up to 25.7 points. So a jump of 8.4 points. That's legit. He's shooting three more um, shots a game overall. On average, it's gone from 12.5 to 15.7. And but his threes have made a market jump. So he he was shooting 2.4. He was making 2.4 to every 5.6 attempts from three. Right? So 42% is the percentage. And he's jumped up to eight attempts a game, 8.1. And he's making 4.4. So his shooting splits before were 53 from the field, 42 from three, and 76 from the line. They've gone up to 59. 54 and 82.6 from free throw. And his attempts have gone up by over one free throw attempt per game. Now, the 54 from three, there's no way that maintains. Clearly. The best shooters don't even sniff 54, to, you know, uh, percentage-wise 
from three. So that's an anomaly. And if he was shooting 53% before, 59 isn't out of the realm of possibility. But that bump up to 59 is basically coming from the three-point range. So if he can find some sort of happy medium in between, sorry, a massive crow just landed on my deck. It's uh, kind of hard not to look at. <laughs> it's freaking huge. One of the biggest crows I've ever seen. Uh, anyway, the jump up in percentage is more than likely going to come back down to earth. But at the same time, it's good to see that his confidence has not wavered. He has stepped in to try and help fill the void. Now, that eight-point difference is not going to make up for all the points that Jamal Murray is now you know, that they're missing from his offense and true to Jamal Murray form started slow and was going to end hot. Now, would there have been games in the playoffs where he puts up 40 one night and puts up 12 the next? Yes. More than likely that was going to happen. The consistency of being able to put up high numbers night in night out is difficult. That's why there's only a handful of guys that can do it. Um, but the, the nice thing for, Denver and Porter with all this. So his rebounds over this stint have dipped from 7.8 to 6.4 and rebounds are an effort stat. But that dip of one rebound a game and a bump up in eight points a game is more, it's, it's a fantastic trade-off because he's shouldering more, shouldering more of the offensive load and sacrificing that one rebound to get it. Any team you know, worth their salt is, is willing to do that. Um, and it's a testament to the Nuggets as a whole organizationally and the players that they're resilient. They, they by rights, should have been completely deflated when a guy of Jamal Murray's caliber goes down. You know, one half of the heart of your team and the other being Jokic, but more of a forceful player than Jokic is just in that uh, uh, being brash and being loud and trying to motivate his fellow teammates and get guys going. Um, so that's when you can, you know, you, you test the metal of a team and you see what they're made of. And the nuggets are made of sterner stuff. And another resilient team, which I brought up earlier. Um, and I haven't talked about much this season, which is the, uh, Atlanta Hawks. I mean, there's another fair, a, a team that was teetering on the brink of collapsing in on itself. When Lloyd Pierce was still there, his tenure ended, they were 14 and 20, right? And nobody in Atlanta expected to be 14 and 20. When you go out and make all the free agent acquisitions that they did, and you're trying to build around this young core, and you push your chips in in a win now kind of mentality, to be 14 and 20 is just unacceptable. It'd be one thing if they hadn't gone out and gotten Bogdanovich and Gallinari, and they were just running it back with their young guys you know, and Capella and seeing what they have there. And if they were kind of struggling up and down, um, perhaps you'd have given Pierce a little bit more leeway. But when you go out and use a lot of your 
cap equity to acquire guys, um, then there are expectations for that. You know, they consulted the management, consulted with Lloyd Pierce. They talked about the direction of the team, the expectations that they had. And to be 14 and 20, even though Lloyd Pierce in the offseason through all the turmoil that Atlanta went through was a calming voice and something I think the city will always uh, appreciate and the players and the organization and their, you know, parting letter to him, thanking him for his service, uh, acknowledge that when they let him go. But 14 and 20 and sitting at 11th in the East is just not good enough. At the time, here were the numbers. They were 12th in offensive rating. Decent. 23rd in defensive rating. Unsurprising if you watch the games. They olayed so many guys just right past them. Be like, map, there's a layup for you. Hopefully we can run down and get one ourselves really quickly. And with an offensive rating in 12th, then you know, you could do that, but their net rating was 16th in the, the league. Their effective field goal percentage was 22nd and true shooting was 18th. And basically they just weren't shooting high percentage or three point shots at a good enough clip to bump up their effective and true shooting percentages and weren't getting to the line enough. Um, but where it got really worrisome was in the fourth quarter, they fell apart. They could score in the fourth under Lord Pierce. They were eighth in offensive rating. But their defensive and net rating, drum roll please, dead last. Dead last. So those first 34 games, if you're playing the Hawks, so long as you're close enough, doesn't matter that you're down in the fourth quarter. They just, they're gassed. They're not going to be doing much to stop you. And that there was... Knowing all of this, looking at those numbers, you heard um, it was beyond rumblings. You heard it erupt out of the locker room that guys were unhappy with the offense. And I think it was uh, Collins, you know, uh, called out Trey Young and was like, this, you dribble the ball forever and then jack up a shot is not an offense and does not motivate us to go and do anything. And the next game after Collins called him out, Trey Young, like a petulant child, decided, oh, okay, you don't like that? I'm not going to shoot the ball at all, and let's see how this team does. And that kind of attitude from your team is like, Trey Young should have been benched immediately and sat out for as long as it takes to correct that type of attitude. Uh, and I don't know that Lloyd Pierce did that. I don't recall him having done that because that game, when I saw those stats, it was right after. Um, and you knew that's what he did. He still played him a decent amount that game, if not his regular minutes. Uh, and this is all off memory, having looked at it when it first happened, and that was three months ago and change. So I, I don't know it off the top of my head. I should have looked at it beforehand. But to have that kind of, you know, childlike behavior, and I understand We've, we've all been in situations where somebody called you out and you're like, dude, I'm doing everything here. F fuck me. Fuck you. And then putting in the effort and you're like, see how you like it if I don't do anything. But if you're getting paid to perform at that level and you think of yourself as 
and all-star caliber, potentially all-NBA one day caliber player. You can't. You just need to go out there and prove to them that you are the leader and player that you think you are. And, uh, you know, full disclosure, I'm not a Trey Young fan. I don't particularly care for the way he plays. I don't like his cheap baiting into fouls. Um, you know, every once and again, he gets hot from three, but his shot selection from three, some games when I watch is just piss poor and it would drive me nuts as an Atlanta fan. I mean, yes, he dribbles through other guys' legs and then runs around them and does some fancy stuff here and there that is entertaining. Um, but I'm just not a fan of a few other things he does. But that can be all that that's all correctable. So anyway, under Lloyd Pierce, fourth quarter abysmal, eighth offensive, 30th, and defensive and net rating. Just piss poor. So then they fire Lloyd Pierce and they elevate assistant coach, former head coach, Nate McMillan. Nate McMillan of Pacers fame, having gotten an extension and then immediately fired after they got drummed out of the playoffs again. And uh, before that, he was with uh, Portland. Like, Nate McMillan has been around. And he's a solid coach. He's a good coach. But you're like, oh, okay, well, placeholder for the season. Let's see how they do. And since McMillan has taken over, they are 20 and 8. 20 and 8. That's resiliency. That is, I am setting a new culture and we are playing a different way. That's okay. We got punched in the mouth at 14 and 20, and we're not going to stand for that. They went from 11th in the East to now they're fifth. Uh, tied with the Knicks with the same record, but the Knicks have the tiebreakers, but they could easily end up fourth. That's a turnaround. Their offensive rating overall, they went from 12th to, during Nate McMillan's tenure, was sixth. Defensive, this is huge. 23rd in Pierce's tenure, 11th in Nate McMillan. They are hovering around being top 10 in both, which means that they are a legit team. Their net rating jumped from 16th to 7th. Effective field goal percentage. They're shooting better overall. Uh, they went from 18th to 10th. Pardon me, 22nd to 10th. True shooting, 18th to 8th. But the biggest is in the fourth quarter. The fourth quarter. Before, they were a sieve. So long as you were down by, you know, a specific percentage of points or less, you could easily... Come back on these guys. Dead last in defense. Dead last in the fourth quarter. Couldn't stop anything. They were a fucking screen door on a breeze, man. Nothing. Uh, so their offensive rating actually went up. They were eighth before under Pierce. They went to fifth. But the biggest jump, 30th in defensive rating to second. Second. Something I never foresaw ever. The Lord Pierce, 14 and 20, they can't play defense is what I assumed from the Hawks. I figured they'd be able to score, but defense was going to be an issue. And Nate McMillan said, nah, that's not happening. We can easily change that. 30th to second, and their net rating went once again from 30th to first. Right now, the Atlanta Hawks 
in the fourth quarter are pay- playing the best closeout basketball in the league. Thanks to their defense. Um, what Heroes in the Half Court says, that's coach of the year argument if I've ever heard one. True, I just problem is 28 games versus a full season, 28 games thus far, but you know, he's barely going to get it to a little over half the games and that's just not enough to win coach of the year for McMillan. But he should be in the discussion. Um, I think him, I think it's Tibbs to lose. Um, I think Monty Williams and Quinn Snyder. And I think those are really your choices. Just because everybody else, like the Clippers already were a good team. So are they monumentally better with Ty Lue? No. They are playing really good basketball right now, and they're going to be a tough out. And my guess is, you know, they're hoping the Lakers stay in the 4-5 range and they can stay in the 2-3, although they're only two games out of first. So they could hypothetically climb to first, especially if Donovan Mitchell is going to be out, you know, continue to be out. Um, but, you know, not going to happen with Ty Lue. Usually, you know, it, it just, those are the four real coaches in discussion right now. Um, and I think it, it goes to tips in my opinion, because the Knicks, I pegged them for, I want to say like, um, 13 in the East, something along those lines. I don't have my list in front of me. You know what? I can, I can pull it up. I haven't looked at that since uh, I did it with Tripoli way back when, although it's going to take me a second to find it. And then let's see if I actually titled it correctly. And I got Western conference. Here we go. Eastern conference. Where did I have? I had the Knicks at 14. Here's here's where I projected at the start of the season. The Bucks number one, Celtics two. I was way off. Miami at three, Brooklyn at four, and I was high. Uh, I was uh, I still remember that a lot of people liked Brooklyn, but had them making much lower because it was going to take time for the team to gel, and who knows with the playing time. But also they didn't have James Harden. Uh, Philly at five. The Wizards at six, Pacers at seven, Hawks at eight, Toronto at nine, Bulls 10, Pistons 11, Magic 12, Hornets 13, Knicks 14, Cleveland 15. So of the 10 playoff teams, so to speak, uh, I got eight of 10, right? Not bad, but no, I was off. I was wildly off uh, in, in certain regards. Although, looking at it right now, I had the Bucks number one overall. I think that they're, strangely, I, I think this is the best they've been. I like them a lot. I watched them last night. I think that's, a, you know, another team that the addition of another score in Drew Holiday and a good defender really makes them super interesting. 
and Giannis is shooting well from mid-range. He'll make a, a, a decent number of threes every once and again. Um, but having Drew there alleviates the pressure off of Middleton to needing to be the clear-cut number two. And if they can sh- you know, share that number two duty, just kind of makes them pretty lethal. And they're playing well on both sides of the ball, by and large. Uh, I like the Bucks a lot right now. Um, but anyway, um, that is today's show. There you go. Want to talk a little Knicks? Want to talk about the resiliency of of Denver and Atlanta coming back, playing hard, um, flying in the face of the odds and expectations, uh, especially in regards to Atlanta. My expectations clearly. Um, you know, I had to make it in the playoffs, but I didn't think that they would be this good. So kudos to Nate McMillan and that team for riding the ship and to, um, everybody that joined me in the chat. Um, I appreciate it. Ishmael brought up a great point of closing out, um, schedules. And I did look at that last night, but I forgot to write down that point. So it's good to, to have some second set of eyes on that. Um, and I probably should have looked at the remaining schedules for all four of those teams in the East to see who has the best shot of closing out in that, that fourth position. Um, but, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. What are you going to do? Can't win them all, guys. Can't win them all. Um, anyway, that is it for today's Dropping Dimes. Once again, thanks to everybody that joined me live and in the chat. We are nearing the playoffs. I am... Uh, looking forward to this. Um, this party's over. Asked the top five most important Lakers. You know, we can get to that next week because hopefully by then LeBron has been uh, has played a game. We'll see. Um, but we can talk a little bit Lakers or something next week. Um, so thanks to everybody that joined. Uh, you can follow me anywhere at Matt Nost. And uh, that is it for this week's Dropping Dimes. Stay safe out there. Stay six feet apart. Wear those masks. Get the shot. Do what you can. Let's get the herd immunity in this country and uh, and the world over and eradicate this thing as quickly as we possibly can. I will see you guys next week with another edition of Dropping Dimes. Until then, adios.